0: Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. Today's message is brought to us by Elder Jeremy Lai. He's preaching from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. All right, so here we have the Last Supper, famous scene, right? Immortalized in art and history, people know about it. But if you look at John's story of the Passover, it's a little bit different than the other Gospels. Let's look into why, because I think they'll kind of tell us about why, we, why and how we serve. So John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's important to know that every gospel has a little bit of a different target in terms of their audience. Matthew, for example, is written for a Jewish audience specifically. John's audience is probably the Greek and Jewish people of Asia Minor on the coast of Turkey today. It's a dual audience, a hybrid audience. And so opening with these words and this word choice is very intentional. We all know that words have implicit cultural meanings. 13 to a swifty is not just a number. For football fans, Hail Mary is not a religious phrase. So the word here that John uses, the Greek is logos. Logos is not just the Greek word for word. Logos was this idea, this philosophy that the Greeks had of something, a thread behind all of existence, something supernatural, binding and behind and hidden what is visible and tactile and could be sensed. So when John opens with this, in the beginning was the word, the Greek audience would have been like, yes, that makes sense, okay. But John extends that, he takes that, and he subverts that Greek idea of something supernatural, this thread, into something monotheistic, into Jesus. Similarly, for his Jewish audience, the word, Torah, the Jewish scriptures, handed down for hundreds of years, generations. It's important to note that in Jewish orthodoxy, there was zero thought that God would come down as a man. That would have blasphemous. But John extends a Jewish word to be fulfilled in Jesus, a single Messiah, God, and man. And John is often used as a gospel that you kind of give to new believers, non Christians, because all the imagery that John uses, familiar things like, Jesus says, I am a good shepherd, I am the vine, bread of life, light of the world. But John's words and phrasing were not just pretty imagery. But they were entirely culturally relevant. They would have made sense to his audience. I don't know how many of you guys, but in sixth grade I learned about Greek mythology. I spent a whole unit on it. Fun stories, but in hindsight, I was like, this was silly. Well, today it is not silly, it's relevant. Think about Greek religion and these and these images. Think about bread of life. To a Greek person, they were thought Demeter. Apollo was the light of the world, Pan was a good shepherd, Dionysus was a vine. Similar to the Old Testament audience, Manna was the bread of life. God is viewed as light throughout the Old Testament. Vines and vineyards are prevalent throughout the Old Testament, the Old Prophets specifically. The point of John's writing is that Jesus is all these things. John's words incorporate and undermine familiar beliefs to bring the story of Jesus to his specific listeners. The nature of Christ should do this. It should confront existing culture, It should be challenging, it should be subversive, and it should be radical. So how we serve should be subversive and radical. Like John's writing, our service should take place in our culture and our context and lead to Jesus. How we serve should be different because the story of our God should stand out. Serve different. So let's look at the characters today in our passage and what they show us. And of course, we'll start with Jesus, right? The teacher who washes his disciples' feet John 13, 1. when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew his hour; he knew his time was coming. In less than twenty four hours, he was going to hang on the cross. He chose service anyway. How many of us, knowing if we knew the outcome ready, would change our behavior? For the students, senioritis. For the rest of us, knowing your job is ending itis, we've all been there. We've all been there. And in most cases, it's probably harmless, right? It may not make a big difference. But broadly, when it comes to helping others, serving others, is how you serve defined by your moment in time? Defined by your circumstances or how people perceive you? Does how easy it is for you to serve supersede the needs of those being helped? Is your service actually self service? Jesus used his last hours in purposeful service and love. It says here, having love. Jesus chose to spend some of his last moments with those he loved. I hope that seems pretty normal. The, word, the words he used here it says he loved them to the end. The Greek here says, eis delos translates to the fullest extent or the uttermost. And that is my first point for us today. We serve different by serving to our uttermost. When you are going to serve, don't be that half in 50 70% person. We've all been there, though. I and mean, We know the type, people who kind of help, but not really all the way. And when we do give 100%, people will notice. Think of the most dedicated servants in your life. Maybe the parents who sacrificed so much for you the best caretakers, coaches, counselors, the Mother Teresa you hear about or read about, those who show a heart that serves to the fullest extent that doesn't change with the tides, that loves and serves consistently even when the circumstances are hard. My first caveat is give yourself and each other grace. We are not Jesus, we are human, and we're going to fail at being serving to the other most, and that's okay. We get tired, we'll burn out. But as we see here, Jesus is the example worth striving for. We'll see what else he does. In John 13, 4, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What do we see here? These are the words of an eyewitness. Look at John's detail. He shows how Jesus is deliberate, is purposeful, he's prepared. This is a radical example of service. By Jewish laws and traditions, the rabbi or master would never wash a disciple's feet. For Greek and modern cultures, I don't think it's any less radical an idea. I mean, we think what tay did was impressive in helping her blue-collar staff. Six-figure bonuses. $55 million in total. But, in 2023, her Aeros tour grossed $1.04 billion. We let a 5% giveaway in our culture stand as something notable. Now, 5% is not bad, better than zero, but it's hardly something radical. Jesus here truly subverts the norm. He flips tradition and expectations on their heads. And what kind of tasks, what kind of dirty tasks, literally or figuratively, do we think we are above doing? It's important to know that in Luke's account of the Last Supper, right before this, the disciples were described as arguing among themselves of who was the greatest. How silly, but how human. We let our pride get in the way of what is really important. Jesus chose to respond to the disciples' bickering with action and service in particular. We all know actions speak louder than words. Service speaks louder than words, emails, emails. TikToks, and Reels, and no task or service is beneath us if Jesus would also do the literal dirty work. When I was a first-year resident, I was an intern, first time in the operating room, we were doing this case, patients on their, on their stomach, we go to the back to treat big kidney stones. I'm just an intern, I'm just literally just like watching. At the end of the case, the senior resident and the attending, attending is like a doctor who's finished a training, is like the boss, they leave the room, they leave me there to wake up the patient from anesthesia. And generally, when a patient wakes from anesthesia, usually nothing happens. But it can be a dangerous time. They're not fully awake. Um, young patients in particular can be pretty combative when they wake up, I and mean, everyone who's been in the OR has been pushed or punched or something. And the OR table is actually very narrow, and so there is risk of patients falling off the table as they wake up and move. And so, so I'm standing there, you know, with this patient. We need to flip her over for safety because it's hard, dangerous to wake up when your face is down. Now, bodies also do other weird things when they come out of anesthesia. People can throw up on themselves, which can be dangerous. Your bladder may leak a little bit, may pass a little gas. And right about 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 a flipper. Right, she's waking up, trying to move a little bit. I'm like, all right, got to, like, you know... We get a massive, massive code brown. Some of you don't know what that means. That's okay. Massive code brown. I'm standing there. I'm like, oh, my God. What do I do? And no one teaches you what to do during med school about this kind of situation. <laughs> so I turn to the nurse. Like, oh, give me the towel. Give me a towel. And we you know, clean her out. She's, like, trying to move. I don't want to fall off table, so I'm trying to, like, clean her up and clean up this and trying to get her over. Um, she's freaking out. But we get it done, right? Get her over safely. Things Things work out. And afterwards, the OR nurse comes to me and says, Jeremy, I just want to thank you for for what you did. And I was like, why? Apparently, uh, in her experience, no resident or doctor had ever bothered to help with that kind of task. And that consequence was the rest of my training. For the next six years, the OR staff and I took care of each other really well. If there's an obscure instrument that I needed or something, they will go out of their ways to look for it for me of course, it went both ways. We, put it, we tried to put each other's needs first. We had a great team environment. For those of you who know, your team dynamic at work is everything. I think patient care was better. It was more efficient. And I don't tell the story to like pat myself on the back. Remember, I was a first-year intern. I was just freaking out. But it illustrates how acting differently than what is expected can have a lasting impact. Too many doctors, not just doctors, but also surgeons especially, we're pretty full of ourselves. We think we're above certain tasks and duties. Does that apply to you, where you are in your work, your position, your status? Not to say tasks aren't generally divided for a reason, right? There's like responsibilities are split, so there's clarity of role, efficiency, or whatever. But the attitude you take with that can change people's lives. What kind of uttermost are you willing to demonstrate? Whose feet, or poop, are you willing to clean? Where are you at workplace, or in your family, with your friends? Can you let your service speak louder than your words? Where can you further Jesus' example of serving differently? Now, obviously, don't do something just to be contrary or to stand out. Remember that Jesus was deliberate and purposeful in his uttermost. Our second character for today is Judas, the betrayer. Judas also had his feet washed, and it's hard to emphasize the level of love it takes to wash the feet of someone you know is going to hurt you. Serving others is not is usually actually probably not easy, as many of you guys probably know. It doesn't even have to be this extreme of an example. Who in your life has been hard to serve? Another caveat, don't put yourself in harm's way just to serve. If people who abuse you cause you trauma, those should be addressed appropriately. Letting someone abuse you is not a way of loving or serving that person. And sometimes the best way to love in that scenario is to remove yourself from that situation. But how did Jesus do this? He knew, and I quote here from the passage, the Father had given all things into his hands that he had come from God and was going back to God. So my second point is this. We serve different by knowing who we are, where we come from, and where we are going. We serve different because of a security and identity and mission. Jesus knew himself, his authority, his power, his presence, but he knew where and to whom he belonged. Our identity and service matters. Parents know that sometimes their children are going to be little trolls and will say and do hurtful things. But they know their status as parents, to love and care regardless. Nurses in this room know patients can be rude, violent, a danger. Sometimes you know that before you walk in the room. But our status as health care providers means we still try to restore their health. Teachers know they have difficult kids in their class, behavioral issues. Those kids deserve an education anyway. The common thread to all these acts of service, despite the difficulties, is the security in something bigger than ourselves whether that's parenthood, the mission of healing, the mission of teaching, whatever industry and service that you work in. By placing ourselves within a larger context, a larger mission, we can better serve and serve different, even those who are hard to serve. Now, security and our identity in Christ is like 50 sermon series, and it's always a work in progress. So give yourself and each other grace in this pursuit as well. And I would hope that our church community here is helping us get there little by little. What about our third character, Peter? In Peter 13, 6-9, through nine, Peter's place in the story and his responses are, are kind of hilarious and they illustrate Jesus' service further. Peter looks at Jesus washing people's feet and he says, are you washing my feet? Then he says, oh, don't do that, too much, too much, don't do that. And then he says, oh, you're doing too little, please wash my hands and my head. <laughs> Peter's clearly uncomfortable with what's going on And as a result, he tries to tell Jesus what to do. Is this some kind of false humility, just confusion? Maybe both? He's clearly culturally self-aware enough to think that what Jesus is doing is improper, or not quite right. But he doesn't truly understand the subversive nature of Christian service, that those who lead should serve, that the first shall be last. It doesn't really matter that Peter and probably the rest of the disciples don't understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus serves anyway. And again, we see his uttermost, his acts in spite of his audience and circumstances. Sometimes when you do the unexpected right thing, when you serve different, people aren't going to get it. You might be ridiculed, shunned, ignored. You might be asked to do more. But security in our identity and something greater than ourselves will help us persevere when the service gets tough, which it inevitably will. Now, uh, John 13, 10, 11, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, this imagery of being bathed to be cleansed is a pretty common biblical imagery linking physical washing and spiritual cleansing. And what Jesus is saying here is if you haven't bathed or spiritually cleansed once, that's all you need. You don't want to keep doing it. But the washing of feet, that is important. That is a daily walking and practice relationship with Jesus. The routine, the liturgy, the practice of faith. But it's critical to know here that Judas was washed and was not clean. So let's compare and contrast these last two characters because at the root of the question of faith why we believe and why we serve is in the ultimate actions of these two betrayers. Yes, two betrayers. Now, Judas we know about, right? There are at least 30 verses mentioning him plus some variation of the word betray in the Gospels. It's a well-hammered-on point. And even in secular society, people know of Judas the traitor. But Peter betrays Jesus too. We'll look at Mark 14, 56. Um, we don't have a projector today, so just listen carefully. Um, so at this, this point in the story, Jesus has been taken by the chief high priest to his house to be undergo basically a sham, sham questioning. Both Peter and John tag along. John somehow is able to go in the house, so Peter's in the courtyard. 56, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Important to note, right before this too, at Gethsemane, Jesus was deep in prayer, struggling with his impending death, the events of the next couple days. And he asked Peter and James and John to pray with him. In that story, Peter falls asleep three times. He fails his rabbi three times in his rabbi's time, of greatest need. Three times the lack of prayer, here three times the denial. Three in Jewish tradition, is the number of completeness. Peter has completely and utterly failed. And furthermore, in rabbinical and Jewish culture, what Peter does in openly denying his rabbi and master is more than denial. It's a social and career ender. This is not you ignoring your math teacher at the grocery store. Being a rabbi's disciple was a 24-7 position. It was an honor. Dropping everything in life and following a rabbi when a rabbi called was expected. Highly coveted positions. I did read some places that maybe one reason why every gospel writer emphasizes Judas as a betrayer so much is that maybe early Jewish audiences needed to know that. Maybe they would have heard this story and considered Peter an equal or more of a traitor to his rabbi, depending on how we think they may have viewed Judas's backgrounds and motives. Not to excuse him, but in Mark 16:7, this is after Jesus resurrected, the angel tells the first witnesses, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Why would the angel and Mark make that distinction? Disciples and Peter. The Gospel of Mark is written first, Matthew second, and they share us the same source material. In both, Peter's story just ends there, after his denial. In John's writing, we see John describe himself and Peter running to the tomb. John and Peter were—they're probably like really—they're probably best buds. But Jesus isn't there anymore when they get to the tomb. And later, John describes how Jesus appears to the other disciples after appearing to Mary, but Peter's absence is a very noticeable void in that scene. John also describes, notably, that Peter had returned to his pre-Jesus, pre-rabbi trade of fishing. It's not a stretch to think that Peter was very much a lost outcast after denying his master. Peter betrayed Jesus, too. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? I think it lies in how they responded to betraying their rabbi, how they responded to their mistake. Judas was never clean, as we see in our passage here. He never accepted Jesus and his teachings. But if we read the story, Judas does show extreme shame, and he feels the weight of his betrayal after the fact. He returns the coins, and he goes and chooses to end his own life as a consequence. This is not to make light of suicide. Suicide and mental illness in our day and age is very different than what Judas did, and we don't want to conflate those across millennia and stories. But it is clear that Judas chose a path without repentance and without hope. And critically, John, unlike Mark and Matthew, writes about what happens afterwards with Peter. Let's look at Peter's response to seeing Jesus again for the first time after denying him. In John 21, 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John speaking, definitely very secure in himself, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. He wanted to go to Jesus. Ironically, he actually got back into the boat to help with the fish. But Peter faced his shame and did it eagerly. He knew he needed Jesus more than he needed to hide with his betrayal and his insecurities. If we remember, this parallels how Jesus called Peter to be his disciple. Out of fishing and into ministry. It shows how Jesus is faithful throughout our entire lives and all of our stories. Going back to our last upper passage today, in verse 8, Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Without his service for us, we cannot be a part of who he is. And that brings me to my last and most important point for this morning. We serve different by allowing ourselves to be served. Serve different by allowing yourself to be served. Don't allow your pride, which can manifest as shame, to refuse being helped, to think of yourself as above being helped. And I do mean this too in terms of just people here with your work, family, friends, school. But of utmost importance, allow yourself to be served by the God who wants to serve us. Judas committed a terrible act, but if he had truly listened to the words and seen the actions of his teacher, there was love and service for him too. What if he had reflected post-crucifixion and seeing Jesus' feet washing for what it truly represented. How many of us think that we are above being helped? How many of us are proud? Oldest siblings, Enneagram threes, or really any Enneagram doesn't have to be three. Are you the mom of the friend group, or an actual mom? Are you burdened with leadership positions, helping others, or whatever excuse you make? for not accepting or even asking for help? My first-year residency, my end-of-year end of feedback was I need to learn how to ask for help. <laughs> or how many of us think that we are beyond being helped? That our mistakes are so dire, that our physical, mental, spiritual qualities make us unlovable or impossible to be cared for, that our station in life means we are worth less than those around us, that our shame and our struggles consume us to hopelessness. Church of Beloved, our story and our community here, we're trying to tell you that the story of the entire Bible is one of hope. That our God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, and infinite chances. Judas ultimately betrays Jesus with finality because he thinks his mistakes are unrecoverable, that there was no tomorrow for him. But that does not have to be our response. Look at John 21:15. This is after Peter has um, sat down on the beach with Jesus; they're enjoying a breakfast of fish. Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these?" He said to him, "Yes, Lord." Three times, Jesus asks if Peter loves him, one time for each denial. Here we see Peter is completely restored. Peter accepts Jesus' love, accepts being washed clean by his Lord. And despite the betrayal, look at Jesus' instructions for Peter feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Despite his betrayal, Peter accepts and takes on Jesus' instructions to serve his people. He becomes the rock on which the church is built and the church exploded. We respond to Jesus and his service by caring for his sheep and that is why we serve. Our passage from John today is a beautiful painting of a God that loves to the utmost. That strips down to wash our disgusting dirty feet, that loves the very people who betray him publicly and literally lead to his death. The answer to how to serve, how to serve different, how to serve our uttermost, how to serve secure in our identities and our greater mission lies in allowing Jesus to serve us. Do you want to open your soul to one who will accept you as you are? with all your imperfections, to be washed of them, and then to be renewed with hope and love forever, to be given a mission to care for all people as Jesus did and does. Do you recognize that God wants us to walk with him and he will continue to wash our feet no matter what mud and filth we run off into? Any of us could be up here and give you general, practical advice whatever job you have, classes you take, people you hang out with. And you should. You should serve your family, serve your friends, your neighborhood, your city, your country, your world, wherever you are. Serving different looks different for each and every one of us. And the permutations of advice I can give you are literally infinite. But that's not what we need. It's not what we're here for. How to serve starts with humility and a heart of readiness to receive what Jesus wants to do for us. We have a God ready to wash our feet. Receive that, and in whatever we do, wherever we are, we will serve freely from a rooted and secure place. The how will figure itself out. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.